Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Dave. And we're the hosts of the Chasing Tomorrow podcast, where we bring you stories that delve into the science and spirit behind intriguing people doing extraordinary things. Welcome to the Chasing Tomorrow podcast. This week, it's episode 89. On this week's episode, we have Canadian Olympian Cam Stones. Now, Cam has just recently returned from Be- the Beijing Olympics, earning himself an Olympic bronze medal in the four-man bobsled. Now, what you're going to hear from today's episode is Cam's unique exuberance for life. And he also talks about the synergy that uh, he has with his three other teammates that earned themselves an Olympic bronze medal. Um, if you wanted to go back into the vault, um, we also have interviewed Justin Cripps, his his teammate, on episode 19. It's a really, really cool episode where Justin talks, you know, the, the science and spirit behind bobsled. But I think if you were to listen to these two conversations, you're going to end up you know, understanding that, that they mirror a lot of one another. And these two gentlemen, including probably the two other guys on in the bobsled, know one another better than they know themselves. Today, we talk about synergy. Welcome to the Chasing Tomorrow podcast, Cam. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Hey, Cam. Well, we, we can't uh, you know do anything other than start with a big congratulations. Bronze uh, mm-hmm. medal at the Olympics. Amazing accomplishment. Uh, in a sport that we will talk details about is, you know, hundreds of a second, which seems like something no one could even measure. Uh, yeah. That really makes a difference. And, and, you know, when we get into the detail of that, I think that the intrigue is how do times end up so close? Like, mm-hmm. as you would think there's so many variables that you wouldn't end up with that, but it does consistently. So it'll all be about execution, I'm sure. Uh, but before we get there, I'm sure that when, um, I don't know, at least when I was growing up and it seemed like winters were colder and I used to love to jump on my sled and was like the most fun thing you could possibly do. <laughs> yeah. Flying down a hill as recklessly as possible. Like if you started doing that when you were a kid, like had you sort of thought about being a bobsledder later in your life? I mean, how in the heck do you get there? What where where'd you start on this journey? No, absolutely. I, I wish I could say that like I grew up with big dreams and big uh, bobsled heroes, but that's not how it went. Um the, my kind of exposure into how I wanted to get into Olympic sport and then ultimately into bobsled was back in 2010 um, when the Olympic torch was coming through Canada. It came through my hometown and my mom, who is a, an avid runner, um, she woke me up at pretty, pretty early in the morning on a school day and we ran down the street, which I just, you know, I'm up early and I'm running. So it's just two things I wasn't, wasn't super happy about at the time. And then we saw like the Olympic kind of parade go by and the flag go, or the, the flame go by. And I just like, that was just electric for me um, in, in kind of igniting what seeing what the Olympics meant to people in, uh, in Canada and especially having a home Olympics and then just kind of idolizing those games. And then from then on, you know, always watching the opening ceremonies, always watching events that just kind of kind of became how I, I was interested in the Olympics. But it wasn't until I was in university. I was at uh, McMaster in Hamilton doing my degree there, playing rugby, playing rugby for the national team. And I really thought rugby would be something I had continued on with. But as it turned out, um, Jesse Lumsden, who I don't know if he's been on the show or not, but Calgary uh, 
Calgary native now, but um, former CFL and NFL player and three-time Olympian, also um, is a McMaster alumni. So he would be training there for the Olympics. And I remember watching him train and thinking that would be so cool to go on and do something that's maybe a little less taxing on your body than, than rugby. I think I'd maybe think differently about that now, but um, <laughs> to train the way I like to, which was, you know, Olympic weightlifting and sprinting. And I was never the guy who loved going on long runs and stuff and getting fit for rugby, which I've, as I've spoken to Dave recently, I've gotten a lot more of an appreciation for that now. And I think that's something I'm really <laughs> going to target um, moving forward. But yeah, I ended up doing a combine, um, a scouting combine for the Ontario bobsled team. And just I, I tested well enough that I was able to to be invited to follow along the steps, and then it just worked out perfectly in terms of uh, where I was kind of at in my um, in my education. I was finishing my degree. I was working for a bank, and I was having some roadblocks with the bank, which ended up just encouraging me to to go full throttle into bobsled and moved out to Calgary. And I've been uh, I've been pretty lucky lucky since in, in my journey. Right. So, so, so Cam, I, I love how you just like kind of gently skip by the point that you're on the national rugby team and you have all of this. So let's back up a little bit. So, so, so really yeah. athletics have always been a kind of a big part of your life growing up. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, I, I wouldn't say I was someone who like really loved um, I, school. I, I did school, you know, and I, um, mm -hmm. I was successful enough to, to get my degree, but like the things that really got me excited were, were sports. So that was, you know, hockey growing up. And then once I got to high school, I was playing volleyball, playing football, had some really good role models in rugby who weren't only just good coaches, but just good, good mentors, good life people. And the, the friends I made playing rugby too, just everything lined up in a perfect way that was able to, to get me to where I am. But yeah, sport is something that like, no matter well, sports and fly fishing are two things that I can get out of bed to do um anytime mm -hmm. so uh I, it's, it's never felt like a struggle to to want to excel and better myself at sport right so, right you know rugby is a power sport and you mentioned mm -hmm. that you like being in the gym lifting weights and you know maybe tell us all a little bit about what are the sort of the skills athletic skills you need to be in bobsled you know like what is going to ultimately make you be a member of an Olympic team? And then how does that develop over time? It's a great question. So number one is you've got to, you know, there's people who are slow twitch and fast switch. So you kind of have to right from the right off from the go, you've got to be a fast switch person. It's just going to be, um, you're going to, you're going to be more explosive. You're going to be more powerful. You're going to be faster. So right off the bat, you've got to, you got to have that. And that's something that rugby players, football players, and sprinters have uh, no, no question. Um, speed we found is something you can't really, you have to kind of inherently have a level of it already. You can't really teach that to an extent where strength is something you can acquire and build and is only relevant to a certain amount in, uh, in the sport of bobsleigh. So um, what you're going to look for is like what we test for is um, we'll do a 60 meter sprint. We do um, a three rep front squat we do a power clean max we do a broad jump and i think that's it all we're testing right now the things that are like very tangible um explosive power measurements right and then right. The, the kind of the, the other thing too that's really important that is really often overlooked is you need to be able to have a certain body type that's um, able to to hold weight without jeopardizing speed and strength 
Um, so there's this like kind of this range in between like 220 at the most 240 pounds. And then obviously there's probably like a 10 pound gap either side of people who are the exception. Do you so Cam, where where are you on that? Where are you on that that on that continuum? Are you at the 240, 250 range or where are you at? I've so I've like traveled in those in between those. So when I first came out to um to Bobsled from rugby, I was probably about 215 pounds got up to about 230 all the way up to about 245 in like kind of my middle years of bobsled back down to 230 because what I just learned about my body is that um, being there's a certain like strength threshold that it just doesn't matter how much stronger you are after that but what does matter is you're going to need to be heavier to be that strong Um, so what I really focused on was I had a what I felt was like a good base level of strength and then I started focusing more on speed so that's when I started doing stuff Dave like uh, a lot more tempo running a lot more um i just spent a lot of time running that would like over over the span of the run would be a couple you know three four kilometers of tempo kind of stuff and i found what that did is it really like it leaned me out and i didn't really lose any strength but my speed went up tremendously so that's that's where i've stayed to compete at and then depending on if you're doing two man or four man or both your weight's going to be a little different too, because of the sled, um, which I'm sure we'll get into there's maximum and minimum weights for sleds. So you want to be as close to that maximum weight with a bare minimum sled. And you're going yeah. to do that by having body weight. Definitely get into the sled thing, but <clears throat> I, was, I was just listening and thinking about, uh, you know, when you start this, it's this, I guess, concept of how fast can you get to maximum power? Right. Mm-hmm. So, like I, I have a battery car and the torque curve is always constant, you know, where in a combustion engine, it takes a little bit of time to get to maximum torque, just the way that the energy system works. And yep. you know, so off the line, an uh, electric car can just, you know, for the most part, get there and move, stay there. So when you think about the power that you're creating, you, know, you can sort of see how that happens after like step number five, you know, cause now you got mm-hmm. the entire body going. Uh, but those first few steps, I think are probably where it all sort of happens, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So tell us a it little is, bit about it is that. For sure. So yeah, it's, that's a really good point, Joe, is that um, that is where it happens. And that's where the difference is made because looking if you watched like someone who's the best pusher in the world and someone who's uh you know middle of the pack you wouldn't see the difference necessarily but where it's happening is on those first few steps and um we always say like our coaches would remind us if we need to like grind out a few more hundreds on the push on on a second heat or something it doesn't happen from trying to just run faster down the hill it happens in the first 15 meters or so so Mm -hmm. what you're what's going to make the difference there is the people who are really like have got such good fast switch muscle and are like so efficient at making the transfer from dropping their body weight in to getting that sled in a position where they're pushing it and then not wasting any time being efficient at pushing that and accelerating that. And then once it's off the, you know, those first 10, 15 meters, what, what it comes down to is who can, who can sprint at speed while still, be like not just bouncing up and down, but keeping all their force going into the sled and down the track. 
Did you feel like sometimes when you came right off that start point, you're like, oh man, that was amazing feeling. I got it going. And other times you're like, oh, I'm a little lethargic here today. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Like the, the good pushes feel easy. Um, and I think that's like, you can really know it. If, sometimes it's weird. You're like, you, you're pushing. You're like, oh, I really felt like I tried hard there. The time's not going to be there. But the times when you like slow down your thought process and just execute on things like for someone like myself, just, uh, you know, triple extension and trying to cover ground and being powerful and patient. That's what's going to make a, a fast push rather than just like hitting it and trying to sprint. Yeah. And so, so when, uh, when, when after, you know, hearing you, Cam, about, you know, talking about all the different systems at play and basically the first couple steps really make a big, big difference for the, you know, three, four and five steps. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I also want to give all of our listeners a little bit of context. I've, I've, I'm lucky enough that I, you know, I treated you in my massage therapy practice and for all of our listeners and, and, and anybody who knows anything about me, I'm an ultra endurance runner and, you know, I'm 150 50 pounds soaking wet. Um, and I remember, Cam, when I was working on you, um, you know, I was looking at your leg, I was looking at my leg, I was looking at your leg, I was looking at my leg, and I was like, okay, we're two, we're two athletes and we're two men, but yet we're two very different types of men, right? And the thing is, is I looked at my body fat index roughly, and I was like, you know what, I bet you Cam has less body fat than I do. You know, it's, it's incredible just the, the amount of powerful muscle that you have at play. So, so all of that kind of comes into mix when it comes to like, are you one of the larger Bobby, uh, uh, bobsledders out there uh, on the Canadian team or, or on the, on the world stage? I would say I'm in terms of like physical statistics, like height and weight average to above average of where most people are. But the funny thing is about being on tour, like, so we've been on tour since November, you know, so I'm around people who are, I'm looking eye to eye with all the time. Mm -hmm. And then it was pretty funny, like going to China, um, you don't really notice it as much because you're, you're around staff quite a bit, but it's like, you feel like a giant. And then you come home and see people that you haven't seen for a while. And like, I'm, I'm six foot three, but like, not, but not, I'm not an NBA giant by any stretch, but I, I feel like it sometimes around some of, uh, some of the people were around. So it's pretty, it's pretty funny, but, um, Dave, I got a long way to go. If I'm going to be the ultra runner, we talked about Like I got a good <laughs> solid 80 pounds to lose. Mm. Yeah. Somehow you and me or camera are probably going to meet in the middle. I'm going to gain more weight and more power and you're going to build up your endurance yep. and we're going to, we're going to trade sports one day. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to intersect them. I'm sure of it. I, I like it. I like it. Dave, the most I ever weighed in my life was 159. And I think that was yeah. really hard to get to that weight. So, uh, <laughs> so it's like a, just a yeah. whole different uh, situation. But, you know, you know, like, so let's do one more topic before we talk about the sled, because I'm really interested in about the sled and then how someone, you know, has razors that go down on ice and doesn't crash every yeah. time. So, the dynamics of a team. So you win the bronze medal in a four person team. And of yep. course there's someone who's going to steer this, this ship down this, uh, you know, frozen, you know, track. And then there's three other people. Um, so let's talk just a little bit about the dynamics because three people are really pushing, right? That's what your job is. Mm -hmm. and, and I guess remaining still, and then you got the steering person. But I have to imagine that there's some interplay that happens because you're all sort of like 
trying to get to this maximum power at the same time. Probably if someone was, imagine just making a joke, if Dave or I were pushing while you guys were pushing, who replaced us with one, it would be sort of, yeah. a, probably would just get knocked over because we wouldn't be at that kind of pacing. And so uh, tell us a little bit about the interplay of the four people. How does that work? How do you yeah. stay close enough in performance that you get the maximum benefit out of that? Excellent question. So I think first and foremost, like everyone on our team, especially is, is really motivated by achieving certain numbers that they know are within their, their physical realm. And because of kind of where we're all at in our, in our careers and stuff, that's all pretty similar. So someone might have like, you know, 10 kilos more on their front squat. Someone might have 10 kilos more on their power clean, but we're all going to be within a range of what we can sprint our body weights. And then just having the, the really important thing is how much time we've spent pushing together. And that familiarity of knowing how that sled's going to feel when you have these two people on the sled. So uh, these two people, and then Justin as well. So we actually have had the same four man team the entire four years, which is like mm -hmm. completely unheard of other than we had one race this year, our last race, we, um, we lost a guy to COVID, but then had him back for the Olympics. And um, the, the guy who stepped in did a great job, but you can definitely feel like that synergy is, is jeopardized when you take someone out like that. As for pushing, um, the the pushing positions are important too so like depending on where you're getting in so the pilot number one his job is to just get that sled moving off the block with us get it kind of up to speed and then he's starting to load and then he wants to get a good clean load off the ice into the sled and then as soon as he starts the the number two guy which is the left side guy is going to get on as well so he's going to be someone who's taller heavier um, someone like myself, although I'm on the other position, I, I would do this position too. His job is to be just a strong beast and he's not going to get up to top speed, but he's going to get that thing moving. And then again, another efficient load without being disruptive to, to the sled's momentum moving forward. Then as I see that guy coming over, I'm getting on. And at this point I'm like at probably, you know, 90, 95% pace. And, and then I'm trying to get in quietly as well. And then as soon as that, uh, the, the brakeman, the number four guy sees me go, he's starting to load. And, um, that's something like that really, uh, differentiates what a good crew versus a, uh, you know, a mediocre crew is going to be is someone there's, there's the push time in bobsled. So that's the time that pops up right away. But then there's also your start speed, your start velocity. And that's the actual speed that you're entering the first corner with. And so if you have a good load that there's everything's contributing forward, it's, it's quiet as we like to call it. It's not moving side to side. That's what's going to help you win races. And that's something that our team really excelled at in the last four years. And that's part of the reason is the synergy that we had as a unit that is just every single time we pushed together, I knew what the guy in front of me was doing and the guy behind me knew what I was doing. So there was nothing to think about. And I think that's something we really executed well at the Olympics, like probably the best we've ever, we have ever done it. And it paid off huge because um, like it came down to, you know, if we'd started a hundredth slower or, you know, maybe like 0.1 of a kilometer an hour slower, it probably would have cost us a medal. Um, and that would have been devastating to have come forth by what would have been less than a tenth of a second. Mm -hmm. Do you count the number of steps is when you jump in? Like, is it always the same exact spot or is it steps? Or what is it that tells you guys when to jump into the sled? 
Great, great question. So for the pilot, it is, the pilot's gonna count. And then since he's the one who's leading the, the load, he's gonna count out 18, 20 steps, whatever we've decided on the track because the start profiles are gonna be a little different. He's gonna start it and then from there, it's all reactionary. So he goes, two guys sees him. I'm trying to see when the pilot's going because I'm on the right side. And that by the time I see him, the two guys probably out of my way so I can get on. And then like, if I were to take too many steps after, like what, what, what ends up happening is the sled's taking off, right? Like a lot faster than you're going to be able to run. And so you can still run with it, but you're holding it back and you don't realize that you're doing that. So you have to get on at a point where you're still going to be able to positively affect the, the trajectory. That's a great point. So, okay. because now you have all this weight and you're pushing with less people. So if you're pushing for too long, you're actually not helping the momentum of the sled at that point. Mm-hmm. For sure. So like it's in, um, in China specifically, um, I know the start velocities were about 49 kilometers an hour. And I don't think, I don't think we can run that fast. Definitely not, uh, not with the sled, <laughs> but um, yeah, so it's, yeah. That's yeah, a great a way board. of thinking about it though. That's, yeah. a, that's such a cool way to think about it. You know, for us Americans, that 49 kilometers an hour is about 30 miles an hour. So there's none of mm-hmm. us are running 30 miles an hour. Not even the best 100-yard dash sprinter never gets up. Maybe they're at 25 or 27 miles an hour. So, so they, this is always, I like these little insights because you sort of don't have that sense of what's happening is all of this right. energy now has transferred from your bodies to this sled. Mm-hmm. And, and you've now created sort of a catalytic effect by putting all this energy into a very efficient machine that's pointing mm-hmm. downhill. And the only thing that can get in the way of any efficiency is just creating more drag. And so you got to just wipe the drag out as fast as you can, which is getting people in the sled. Exactly. Exactly. So it's even like, it's even nuanced enough that um, the two guy getting in because he's got to be just a little bit elevated to let me come in underneath him. And like, it's super tight in those sleds. Like it's uh, people were compared to like four guys who are around 230 pounds sitting in a bathtub together aerodynamically. <laughs> so it's pretty tough. But so what, like um, you talked about drag Joe, and that's a great point. And that's um, so like when the two guy gets in, he's trying to like cover over top of the pilot so that he's breaking the air over top of all of us getting in. But if he's sticking up too much, he's going to break that air on us, but he's also just going to become a flagpole. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then the other thing that's like, so, that's so important um, for a crew to be successful is you need to ride in the sled well. So that's being as least um, or as aerodynamic as possible. And that just means like getting down and absolutely like crunching yourself into this position that you're as low as you possibly can be. And then fighting for every like little centimeter or um, every little bit of space that you can get. And then as you're going through pressure, um, it's like the big, the G force in the corners, you're pulling down even more. And like, it's, it's crazy. Like some of the, some of the positions Mm. you can get into um, are, are remarkable that a human body can, uh, can do that. But that's kind of what separates um, the crews is, you know, who's willing to to hurt the most for this minute to be, Mm. to be aerodynamically successful. That matters. We get yeah. Talk about what does that mean? Yeah. I want to get to that in a second because like before mm-hmm. we kind of jump into that, what I'm thinking about this, Cam, is that you okay, you guys have been training together for 
for four years, you guys been you guys been con consistently racing together, and you know, you know, me and Cam here, Joe, we're we're up here in Canada, and of course we're big hockey fans. Well, Cam, I don't know if you're a big hockey fan, but I am. You know, sure, I, yeah. I grew up watching the Sedin twins in uh, in uh, in Van on the Van with the Vancouver Canucks, and these are you know twins, and you know they like they're twins, right? They they know one another better than anybody else in the world, and some would even argue that science would indicate that you know, they are kind of one another, right? And yeah. so, you know, I almost see that as like, you know, when you're competing with people you don't know, you're using a flashlight. But when you're competing with mm. people that you know, you're using a floodlight. And, and, and it, you become aware of all the movements, all the, the, the perfectly timed breaths, the, you know, the, the way that, the, you know, you, you, the guy running in front of you, his, his knee kind of twitches when he's even considering jumping into the sled and yeah. things like that. So my question for you, Cam, is that it sounds like that is an integral part of the success of, 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 of your team. The four of you, do you guys, you know, barbecue together? Do you guys go fly fishing together? Do you guys, you know, are, are you guys best of friends? Uh, at what point, because I always like to think, you know, your professional athletes, when they're playing in a perfect way that it's so synergistically you know, perfect within their sport. And you see that in, um, in, in the major league level in baseball and in hockey and on and so mm -hmm. forth. Do you guys spend a lot of time with one another kind of building that, that rapport of, you know, one another better than almost anyone else? Absolutely. Like everything you mentioned, do we barbecue together? Yes. Do we fly fish together? Yes. Um, you know, all our wives and girlfriends are really good friends and we spend not only like every moment training together, but we like all our free time as well is spent together. So it was a really cool, unique situation that this entire quad, we've been a really tight unit of four people. Um, like no, no question. So when the pandemic started, uh, my roommate, Ben, he built um, a great garage gym here. So that became like this hub for all these people to train in. And I don't know what the number is, but a bunch of people ended up winning uh, Olympic medals who were training here. So like, I think I want to say like, I don't know, six, seven or eight people, like oh. um, one medal wow. training here. But um, yeah, like we, we, we celebrate together. We, uh, when, when things don't go, to, go well, we, we lose together too. And um, when we won in, in St. Moritz, I think it was two years ago. So St. Moritz is the birthplace of bobsled. It's the only all natural track left in the world. And it's like a pretty, um, it's a pretty big race to win. It's like the Monaco kind of like F1 level win. Um, we won that race. And then what they do is they give you these giant jerry bombs of, uh, of champagne, you know, which they're, they're doing the NASCAR mm -hmm. thing on you, but we kept one of them and we brought it back here and then had had it in the summer and had a party and we we've done that every year since and we're going to continue to do that every year since although i think we've got uh we've got some other stuff to celebrate with it too now so um it's pretty cool like there's just the, the thing about bobsled is that um in terms of recruiting and bringing in athletes you're always looking to to improve right and physically someone can come in and look really appealing on paper and that's always a temptation in bobsled especially for a brakeman who other than being a good pusher, I don't want to say it doesn't have a lot to contribute because being a, being a good teammate and, and stuff are definitely valued more. But in years past, if some, if a shiny objects come out, um, it's usually been the case that that person's given an opportunity to take your spot on, on your team. And our team, 
definitely dealt with that. Like we had people come out and you wondered, are they going to try to switch so-and-so out? Um, but they, the, the program gave us the opportunity to continue to develop as a team. And I think that it ended up being tremendously su successful. Like we had, we've won three crystal globes, which are top three world cup finishes um, over the last four years and then an Olympic medal together. So I think it's, um, it's a testament for like being a successful team is the whole package. It's not just being physically gifted. Um, it's, it's maybe even the opposite, like not having the physical gifts to that extent, but having the, the other tangibles, like just that, that, that Sedin factor, you know, knowing, knowing each other better than they maybe know themselves. And I joke with my roommate all the time that I'm like, I know you better than you know you. And, and yeah. he can't argue. Um, <laughs> but it's been, it's been successful. And like compared to teams in the past that I've seen come through the Canadian program, um, we've just, we've had kind of like a, an un, I don't want to say uncon, um, maybe not surprising level of success, but it's certainly unexpected to some people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, the, so it's interesting, you know, teams and all of the, you know, the truisms as well as the trite sayings about a team. But here, of course, it's a lot of selflessness because the three people who are pushing and then just sort of hiding inside this sled don't seem to be doing anything. Seem, you know what I mean by that, right? It's like, oh, yep. their job and now they've disappeared. So let's just talk for a second about that. So you, you guys jump in this sled. And that's also interesting to think about, Dave, right? You know, this guy's 6'3", 240 pounds. We would normally not say they're the most flexible and uh, <laughs> the yogi of the world here bending themselves mm -hmm. over. You know, I think, uh, I know I'm not very flexible. So you got to have flexibility if you're going to do this because you're going to be in this mm -hmm. awkward position. But so you get in there and now you know, look, drag is the enemy when you're talking about hundreds of seconds. So you said, yeah, we got to also be as low as possible things bouncing back and forth you're trying to stay close to someone like is what's going on like in the sled when you're not the driver are you very mm. conscious about this or are you just sort of like you disappear for a minute and a half like what's happening in you know or or like you hit a bad turn you feel that you're like oh boy i can do something tell us a little more about the dynamics of that yeah so i would say it's like a our job done well is in a, like an active disappearance. So when you're going down the track, you're not just, um, you're not there for the ride. You are actively trying to fight to get down low. And then mm. I like, we've done it so many times as a unit, like you can tell if something's off with the person near you. So like I can tell if Ryan in front of me, if he's gotten in like a little weird or is a little far back, but then can get into position um, I can tell like the one race that we did with someone else, I could tell but, that he was behind me. And like with my, my roommate, who's the brakeman, I can never feel him in the sled. So it's like, I can tell that we're not as fast or aerodynamically if something's a little bit off. And then in terms of like, in terms of the run, we're trying to fight that entire time. But if you, you can feel every little thing and you know what a good run feels like, you know, where certain areas of the track are bad to take taps or speed killers um, so you get super in tune with the run at the same time as like trying to just absolutely, you know, drill my helmet into the guy in front of me and just push down. And then every, every little bit of pressure I get, I'm trying to just continue to just pull my spine down and get, get underneath the sled. 
Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, And so when when, when, another uh, technical question, when you're when you're in the Mm -hmm. sled, you know, and when it, you know, you let's say you're on your third turn, you know, does Justin, you know, your your uh, your driver, does he ever say, hey, kind of change your position, like rotate your shoulder a little bit more this way? put your head kind of this way to kind of use your, you know, the, the body weight in the sled to kind of rotate into a turn, or do you try to stay as still as possible? We, we try to stay as still as possible. So any little movement will, will move the sled. So what happens a lot of times, um, it, not a lot of times, but just if, if a cruise inexperienced and then depending on the track, if you get in and like, say your right foot is caught on the guy in front of you and you try to like lift that up and move it, that little movement will cause you to just skid a little bit. And then mm-hmm. as soon as you start skidding, you're, you're breaking, right? Like think of, uh, if you think of hockey skates, when you try to come to a stop, you just apply more pressure and angle them, come to a break. The same thing happens with the bobsled. So Justin mm-hmm. likes to call it when he's, when he's got his runners straight, he's hitting the gas. When he's turning, he's, he's hitting the brakes. Cause that's, right. that's what'll happen. So you want to be as, as free and fast as possible. So yeah. No, we, I know back in, in the old days, like the guys would lean and stuff, but we don't, we try to be as, as invisible as possible and stable because you get mm-hmm. whipped out of corners a lot. So the tighter you are with the guy in front of you, the less you're going to move. And the, right. every little bit of like, you know, someone's helmet moves just a little bit is going to be drag. So yeah. we try to just so be I, quiet, very quiet. Absolutely. So Cam, I got to ask, and you know, do you ever like, you know, for me, when, if I, sprint or if I'm doing a workout or something and then I go into a very contracted position into my foot mm-hmm. or my lower leg and yeah I think you know exactly where this question is going do you have mm-hmm. you ever cramped in a way where All you're like time. dear dear lord um but you, the only way to release a cramp is to to move out of it or to draw blood <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah but you can't you're stuck there for a minute and that would be I don't know about you Joe but I think that would be complete hell uh, does that happen to you often Complete. Yeah, for sure. Especially if we haven't been in the sled in like a, a week or so it's like, so you're, you're in this position where you're like trying to like suck your stomach in and like contract at the same time. And then like your body will do it involuntarily too. It just like absolutely locks you into these positions. And then depending on what track it's at, so like in Whistler, I think you hit like five G's or so in the last corner and you, you'll hit speeds of like 155 kilometers an hour in pressure through that corner. And like, you can just feel everything in your body start to just like crunch up like that, but you can almost use it at the same time too. Cause it's like, once you get there, you can keep going. And then mm-hmm. when you get out, when you get out of the sled, sometimes like, it's like, you have to take a second to be able to stand up just cause it cramps so hard. And I had a mm-hmm. umbilical hernia fixed a few years ago. And so like, sometimes I'll feel that kind of like scar tissue and stuff from it. And mm-hmm. um, if it's been, if it's been a tight, uh, a fast run or like a high pressure run about an hour later, like I'll have to consciously do kind of like cool down exercises and like get, get my core mobilized again, because it can be, it can be pretty painful and uncomfortable. So let's talk mm-hmm. sled for a little while. <clears throat> um, you know, for the average person watching sleds pretty much look similar. Uh, are there rules? Like tell us a little bit about what's allowed, what's not allowed. And then what can make it different or better than another sled? Yep. Excellent. Excellent question. So on tour, the way that things kind of happen on tour is there's a few sled manufacturers that are like the, the go-tos and every two, three years, 
one of the manufacturers will come out with a sled that's the sled and it's the fast sled and then everyone will try to get one of those sleds so right now um this this austrian maker called walner is making the the fast sleds and i would say probably 10 to 15 maybe not that much about 10 of the top sleds on tour are in those sleds that are very very similar um if not identical um there are rules for sure there's um there's really strict uh equipment scrutineering and that'll depend on where you rank in certain races so your your sled will get taken apart measurements done and there are certain things little nuances that can be taken advantage of uh that'll make your sled faster for sure but if you got caught you would get disqualified and then there's there's the it's like formula one you know where there's like gray area stuff there's stuff that is like pushing the boundaries is it legal is it not legal what can we get away with um and there's there's huge payoff to that too the the big story right now about equipment is the german sleds like they um they're an absolute machine i think they won nine out of ten sliding sport medals um mm -hmm. they swept the podium in two man their equipment is just incredibly fast they put a ton of money into it um whereas you know most other nations like i would say canada is a pretty major bobsled nation um but we we rely sorry we rely on purchasing our equipment and that means that we're always behind the technology, but the Germans are, um, their military makes their equipment. And so they're constantly mm. trying things, testing things, new sleds coming out and, and it pays like they're, they're incredibly fast. Their sleds are incredible and no one else can get them. So, um, the length is the same, the weight is the same, the close, there's small margins. Yeah, close. So there's um there's a minimum sled weight, which I think I think for like a four man it's 210 kilograms. And then with crew, so with everyone inside of it, I believe the max is 630 kilograms. So what you're trying to do is is have that sled running as light as possible because light things are easier to push. And then you want that same mass that near maximum because um, you know, it's what's heavier is going to go downhill faster. And you want that to be as close as possible um mm -hmm. in terms of measurements there are there's different measurements but there's areas where like you know the back of the sled has to be at least 30 centimeters wide or yeah it can't be narrower than that um there's regulations but then there's there's room for interpretation too so it's the the top sleds will look a little different than than um you know the the sleds mm -hmm. we're using for example Blades. they'll look a little yeah. smaller yeah and then so the the big thing too joe is uh is runners we could yeah the blades um so they're they're like integral in in speed so there's different cuts and that what that means is like certain you know some are fatter some are thinner and what those will do is just be better on different conditions or different tracks so if you've you need three things to be able to be successful uh in a bobsled race you need a push you need equipment and you need a drive you can win with two of the three um but ideally you want to have all three so like if we'd had the same push the same drive but runners that weren't as good as we were using that would have cost us the medal for sure because we only ended up winning mm -hmm. it by six hundredths mm -hmm. of a second so you're trying to make those decisions on, on which what equipment you should use and then there's obviously still like programs that are big money have got so much equipment that they can just you know they know what's going to be good where mm -hmm. and so cam so you, you so when you go to the Olympics, um, you know, do the Germans who are pushing last, because typically they're they're winning or doing you know, really, do they have like, you know, their sled under, 
you know, a curtain and, and nobody else can see it. And, or do Cam, do you and the team kind of like, you know, look around the curtain and, and notice these small little differences and the cut is a little bit, and you, you kind of make a little note of like, okay, yeah, yeah. Look what they're doing there. And, or do, oh, do, yes. do they try to hide it? Yeah, so yeah, everything you said is, is completely true. So yes, they try oh. to hide it, but so do we, you know, and yeah. I always liken it to, um, you ever been to like a, like driven past a Walmart on a Sunday and you see the guys with the old cars and they've got the hoods popped open and they're all sitting there and you can come look at each other's cars. A bobsled race is exactly like that in that um, before the race starts, 45 minutes before they call it park for May, which means you can't touch the sleds anymore. There's got to be all the equipment off of this. So you can't have a cover on it. You can't have anything on your runners and it's basically there for everyone to see. So what'll happen mm -hmm. is you'll have, you know, dozens of people walking around, taking notes, looking at who's using what runners. Um, and then in terms of actually like the interior of the sled, you try to catch a glimpse whenever you can. And like some nations are like really good at hiding um, stuff in there. They're like, they'll have towels on things. So a lot of it's smoke and mirrors. Like we'll do stuff sometimes that's like, you know, we're just messing around, but like we can tell it gets people fired up. Like we can see, yeah. uh, can see the, the coach is like, you know, what's going on there? Why are they covering their, their steering or their, or their runners or something like they're up to something, even though, you know, we right. may or may not be, but there's tons of it, tons <laughs> of it. Like, it's like, it's, it's wild. And we're always trying to like, re, um, always trying to take notes of what runners people are on. And um, yeah, cause it, it matters. It can help you a lot too. Let's, oh, yeah. absolutely. Let's talk Olympic experience yeah. a little bit, you know, so yeah. Uh, the sport, you know, is interesting in that you're on different tracks and all of that. So we probably could spend the entire day going through all this, but here you get to go to the Olympics. And I think, you know, many of us find that to be sort of the pinnacle of sport uh, from every level, you know, not the least of which is, you know, just the sport itself, but it's the experience. It's one of the few truly global activities that we do we bring everyone together and we compete as sort of fair as we can and mm -hmm. i don't know probably the coolest thing you could do is to show up at the olympic village and be there and like wow how did i get here yeah 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 that's definitely i definitely feel like that i mean it's this this olympic quad was different for me for sure having been to the Olympics already, but going to the, going to the Olympics in 2018 was, um, was an amazing experience, totally different from the experience we had in Beijing, but really cool, Joe, that like, I, I got to show up there and it's like, wow, I'm, I'm at this event that I've seen on TV since I was a kid. And I can remember watching this and I'm finally here. Uh, whereas going in 2022, just recently, it was a lot different. It was, um, you know, we had a, a very defined goal of, of getting a medal and we were in a position that that was, if we executed well, we could do that. Um, 2018, I was there to participate for sure. I was on the third team and my, my objective was to experience the Olympics and to race at the Olympics. This time was a lot more focused. It was a lot more, you know, opening ceremonies, amazing, take it all in. But then as soon as that was done, we were back into focus for, for, the Olympic races, which were, you know, it's very similar to how a world cup would work. Like you see the same people, it's the same format. Um, so yeah, it was, it was good. It was a, a totally different experience, but a great experience too. And then the, you know, the impact that it has on not only yourself, but like your family and then seeing the support you get from back home and 
you're hearing from people you haven't talked to in years and it, it means so much that they take the time to to recognize you and and you know appreciate your journey it's it's really touching and I think that's you know win or lose at the Olympics the real the real win is that you you've made it there and and you've got an army of people supporting you and you know maybe sometimes you lose sight of that or forget that and you remember for sure and you get so many wicked keepsakes like videos people sent me that I'll have forever which are really special right right but but that being said cam i mean it was a very different olympics it was an olympics during a pandemic um you yeah. know there were no or or very little spectators like you know i saw mm -hmm. your your physiotherapist uh, you know banging a little hockey stick against a molson canadian uh, 24 pack um you know like mm -hmm. there weren't a lot of people there right and and what did that yeah allow you as an athlete to focus in more on your sport and what you needed to execute or did you feel like oh you know maybe i would have performed better or maybe i would have enjoyed this more having a bit more of an atmosphere yeah. you know not being in the middle of a pandemic i think dave just the way that the last two years have gone and the the 2020 olympics being can't or postponed that fear kind of leaking into our our cycle and then you know with the omicron outbreak in uh it, like globally before the Olympics, I think we were just so relieved to be there that it did not, it didn't take away from the experience um, because our families weren't there because it's like, it's not like that's something we'd lost um, within that, that month, you know, it's like something we knew mm -hmm. wasn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. We had a lot of time to, to prepare for that, but, but the, the overarching theme of like, if I test positive for something that's completely to an extent out of my control and my Olympics can be over that was more so the focus for um i think what stressed a lot of people out it it sucked not having family there for sure like my family went to uh pyeongchang and they had a blast um but it was it was there's was solace in knowing that there was no other option like it's not like they had to cancel last minute or anything so everyone had time to prepare and it just it allowed for a very focused environment like i didn't feel the need to to go into beijing and see my parents at that canada house or or um, any of that kind of that uh, exterior noise. So it's, um, it, it is what it is. But I mean, in terms of having an Olympics in a pandemic, it felt very similar to Pyeongchang, um, which wasn't in a pandemic. Uh, the only difference really was we're wearing face masks, we're getting tested every day, and we're just sitting at like individual cubicles, but everything's plexiglass anyway. It was a little weird, but I mean, not anything we haven't been dealing with, with uh, you know, everyone hasn't been dealing with for the last two years. So just so grateful to be there that it, it really didn't matter um, what that looked like. And so remind us, you do four runs in the bobsled? Yep. So first, it's a two-day event. First day is two runs, second day is two runs, and then it's a cumulative time of those four runs. Okay. So you guys are, you're up there, you get through a couple of these, you're in a good position for a medal. Like yeah. how's it coming together? Oh, okay. <laughs> this is good. So the, after the first run, like, um, we'd had good training runs all week. And then Justin nails the first run. We push well, we're feeling good. Um, we're, we're sitting in a good position that, you know, we've got two German sleds in front of us. The, the one in front of us is only eight hundreds in front. So we're like, man, we're, we're in the conversation here for sure. For a medal, we can challenge for this race still. And the guys who were behind us, who we were like maybe thinking of were as threats were not, we're not, we weren't worried about them in a weird way. So it's funny, like you can be the, the way that the, the start house is in, uh, in Beijing, 
the warm-up area is on top of the the change rooms and it's a fully heated indoor track so it's awesome like absolute perfect perfect scenario to warm up in and i noticed this that you've got a hundred men who are you know very similar to me like think they're the toughest guy in the room i don't i wouldn't say i think i am but there's a lot of people in there who think they are right sure and uh you got a hundred people who and a lot of testosterone up there before that first run everyone thinks they're going to win that race and then after the first run you can see like a vacuum sucked the life out of you know three quarters Mm. of that room and you can tell if if you didn't know who people were you would Mm -hmm. be able to tell who's still in the position or who's given up and that was that was super crazy to see because obviously we were sitting in a good position where we were 1600s which sounds like nothing but to us at that point was like we have a good lead on the fourth place team so going into that that second heat we felt really good the run was was good we pushed even better um but we noticed that this german was creeping up on us and had taken a few spots from guys behind us and we're like well, that's, that's not good because the guys who we're usually competing with in races are falling back behind this guy. The two Germans in front are starting to run away with this, but the guy creeping up on us is something we need to worry about. So it was weird. After the first day, like we were in a, a metal position, um, but we felt uncomfortable. And it was kind of, uh, it, we, had, we had to talk about it, to snap out of it, to be like, we're still in a position here to metal. We were 1700s up on, on fourth place, but we we were acting like we weren't. And so we made that conscious decision mm. to shift our mindset, redo the equipment and get ready for the next day. And then after that, that third run, we're still in third place, but now he's taken another nine hundreds on us. So we're, we're only eight hundreds in the lead. And at that pace, like we're like, we can't survive another run um, that I, we believed we could, but it, it was possible. Right. And then uh, going into that, that fourth run, I just remember thinking how bad I did not want to feel what fourth place felt like. And I knew that if mm-hmm. we, if we fell behind this guy, it was going to be by a hundredth or two and it was going to hurt a lot. Um, and then, so doing that final run, he, I can see, do you see the team in front of you or I guess they'd be behind us. So the fourth place team goes off the block before you. So you're standing there, you see their times, you see, oh, man, he's had a good run. He was just fast. We've got to nail this. And we, we have a, we have a great push, great load. I feel like we have a little tiny tap up in corner six, but the rest of the run is absolutely dialed. And we come up, like I, we get to the bottom and I'm like, I think we did it. I think, I think that run was good enough that we could have hold, held on to it. And then when I remember coming up the breaking stretch and seeing it was green and green means good. And then it was just absolutely like just chaos emotionally, like just the most overwhelmed I've ever felt in my life. And and relieved and elated and uh you know just fulfilled it was it was really an incredible um, moment but it, what's cool looking back is we didn't know how close it had been so when the run started we were about two tenths up because we were pushing faster than this team by about the midway we're 1600s it gets down to two hundredths of a second and we're getting near no. the bottom of the track and then it gets down to a hundredth of a second and then so you, it's at a hundredth of a second. And then there's, there's like, uh, I don't know, four or five more corners left. And the next clock is the finish clock. And we come through the finish curve and we, we got back to six hundredths up on them and, mm. and held the position and won the bronze. But it's been so cool. Um, a lot of our family members filmed themselves or the, the rooms they were in during that. And you can just see, you can see the room. Like um, when we push, we're up, people are pumped. They see the next clock. We're still up like by enough. They're pumped. 
gets down to 200s and people start screaming at the TV. They're oh, no. Like, no! Yeah. <laughs> because it just, it's really, it's really rare in a bobsled race to get time back at the bottom. Right. And, um, and then it gets down to 100 and people are like absolutely mm. melting down or frozen. And then to see the elation get lifted off oh, yeah. and the pressure get lifted off everyone, it's, uh, it's amazing. It's giving me chills right now thinking about it oh. but um so that that's you know, a lot of that is justin's driving at the end isn't it because he he kept such a clean it, line i remember watching it and it was so clean at the bottom but when, but when you hit when you tapped you know the the, the sixth turn or you, you said you tapped yep. up top you know yep. immediately in your head what what went through your head you're like oh no like that's that's you know that, that you know we we missed that turn yeah so there were there were two corners before that that i knew we had to nail and he he nailed both of those then we have that little weird thing in six and I'm like that we haven't done that before. I don't know how that's going to play out, but then he absolutely nailed it. And like, it wasn't a big mistake or anything, but it's just the fact that the Germans are so they're so good that if you make any sort of mistake, you, you can lose to them by, by these little mm-hmm. margins that are nothing. So he, he, his run was amazing. And I felt like it was, and to see it, uh, to see it on TV justifies it too. And then we had, uh, he was so good driving the bottom of the track. We had the fastest speed on all four heats down there. So hmm. though the camera said that we were, or we were a hundredth up on them. Um, it's like, he was building time down there, which showed in the, in the final clock, but uh, it was, it was, it made for really good TV. And yeah. uh, I've had a lot of people, I mean, we've all had a lot of people like reach out or we've talked to them. They're like, that was like so close. And like, people don't realize how small of a margin that is. And, um, you know, like the, the hundred, a hundredth of a second is, is basically non-existent in terms of like being able to measure that out visually. So, um, it's, it's amazing to think that, you know, if one little thing is different, it's, it's gone. And, mm-hmm. and it, you know, we, we end up losing that, that race. Yeah. You know, it, it is sort of like it's both fair and unfair because we're all competing in the same kind of environment. And I think, you know, swimming lots of times, a hundredth of a second, you can't even see someone touch the wall different. You got this bobsled thing, they're so tight. You get sprints that, you know, like there's a lot of this that really is, you know, this almost imperceptible difference. Uh, Absolutely. Skiing the same thing, even on these, uh, you know, stuff with a lot of drag, you wouldn't expect. So, you know, you attribute one is we're bringing the right, quality across the board that means you're all really good at what you do so it's not a massive gap um and then you know i think i'll say this and cam please correct me if i'm wrong but when you win by a hundredth or lose by a hundredth it's not just a random thing it's actually that you did execute better in that discipline because that is the margin of difference and it's yeah. not like, oh, well, that just happened. I mean, so like, how do you like think about that part of it? Is that like fair to say it that way? Completely, completely. And that's why when you're in a field that's as, com- as competitive as men's bobsleigh is right now, you have to be perfect or else you'll be able to pinpoint that exact moment when you lost it. And so whether that's at the top of the track, if your load's not perfect, you know, like you take just the tiniest little skid going into that corner or you take a little tiny tap somewhere, or someone's a, a split second late on the push, that's going to, that's going to cost. And I remember distinctly a race this year 
we were sitting in second position after the first run and it's only a world cups are only two, two heat uh, races. And we had a pretty comfortable lead sitting in second place. And we just made the smallest little error. Like when we got in the sled just moved a little tiny bit and touched the wall and it was over. We ended up finishing like fifth in the race, you know? So we came, we lost like a, a 10th or two from that. So everything has got to be so perfect. And I, I can't imagine how Justin feels sitting in the front of the sled, having to make these microscopic movements with his hands under that kind of pressure. Um, and he, and he does it. And that's something that I think is, it's so they make driving the sleds look so easy, but when you're at that speed, you know, 140 kilometers an hour, and you're making those microscopic adjustments in, in the split second intervals that you do, it's just, it's amazing that, um, that he's able to do that. And, and, you know, I'll, I'll give our crew credit too, that, uh, with that at stake and on the line that we were able to execute our push and load, um, as well as we were, it all contributes when it's, when it comes down to that thin of a margin, like everything's got to add up. Yeah. It comes to as a complete testament of uh, Justin's abilities, but I guess everybody's abilities to kind of, mm -hmm. you know, compete on that razor's edge of their sport and, and doing, doing what he does exceptionally well. Um, let's, yep. let's jump a little bit into kind of uh, family and support networks, yeah. you know, of course, yeah. uh, you know, let's, let's talk about your wife a little bit. Zoe is Zoe, right? Yeah. Yeah. She's Zoe. an incredible yeah. athlete herself. Um, you know, your family, uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about your supports. Uh, who was your, who was turning you on while you were, while you were at the Olympics this year? Well, so first my wife is, uh, she's an American Joe. So you'd, uh, you'd love her. Um, she's, she's actually from Alaska. I met her, she was playing hockey in Calgary. She used to play for the U S national team. Um, so she's a phenomenal athlete, amazing skier. And to have someone who understands what you're going through, at times, you know, times like the Olympics or an Olympic quad is, um, it's irreplaceable. And we've been apart for the better part of the last four years. And that's been really difficult, but she's been there the entire time and supportive. And, um, you know, she trains with me and she's, I'm, I'm really lucky to have her in my corner and, and looking forward to spending more time with her after this. But um, then it's like, my parents are my, my biggest supporters for sure. They're the absolute, like they had the whole Canada Olympic setup outside of their house. And um, it's been really cool to share that experience with them from afar and see kind of the impact that the Olympics has on not only me, but them too, you know, to their friends. And, uh, you know, they, they get their own special piece of the experience. Um, my sisters, my older sister is a, is a teacher and she's awesome. Like she's so supportive. She's got her kids all pumped on sport and bobsled. And then my younger sister's in Cirque du Soleil. So Joe, you were asking about flexibility and stuff. Like it's just, we genetically the stones were flexible people so nice. my sister's still in Cirque du Soleil um that's amazing so yeah and then just like you know people from growing up and uh like my hometown of Whitby has just been so so awesome and supportive the entire time and not just when things have been good but when things have been bad too and um I'm, I'm very appreciative of that yeah so so you know I, it's probably nothing like you know uh being able to hold that medal and you know, it's sort of locked in for your life. I mean, that's the cool, cool part of this. And, you know, it's a big journey every four years. It's like a lifetime and a big commitment. Yeah. Uh, is there more of this? Are you going to keep doing it? I'm not sure, Joe. It's, um, I had like this, this strange, 
experience in the last run in that I was going down and thinking there's a good chance this is the last time I'm ever in a bobsled. And part of me was really relieved in that because like, it's just, it's taxing and it's, um, it's a lot on your body. It's a lot in your life to be able to compete at that level. Uh, and then to, to come down and, and see that we'd won the medal, it was, I just felt so fulfilled. Um, and that I'd done it with, with the, my teammates and the guys that they were and the experience we'd had. I don't know if, if there's anything better in my sporting career than that, that I'm going to achieve, um, mm. because of the way that kind of the sport is headed. Um, it's very, it's very equipment dominated and we just, we don't have the, uh, the resources to compete, um, kind of to a certain extent. So that's why this also feels so good because it felt like, you know, we were really up against it in that. But then the other thing too, that, um, is that it took so much energy and focus and sacrifice to be able to be at this level, um, for these Olympics and, you know, through this entire quad that I wouldn't, I'm not sure if I've made the decision yet that if I'd want to come back without putting that much work in, because it's just, um, it takes a lot to be at the top of, uh, of your game. And, and I wouldn't want to do it any other way. I wouldn't want to come back and be, you know, at 75% of what I'd, what I've been capable of. And I'd, I'd want to do myself justice. Um, I think anyone would feel like that too, that if you're going to do something and come back, that you're going to do it full throttle. And I think I've just got other things in my life right now that I want to focus on and other things I want to try. And I just feel, um, at least right now, I feel really accomplished and fulfilled by being able to win that four-man medal with the guys. Yeah, I think Dave will ask you the last question, but uh, it just it, you know, makes me think about anyone who, and there were quite a few this year, who've been at two, three, four, some five Olympics to hold yeah. that level for all that time. There's a female speed skater who I think was in her fifth Olympics and she won the mm-hmm. gold medal in her mm-hmm. the 1500 or something. And you're like, it, it is hard to contemplate at that level, you know, mm-hmm. to be able to yeah. do that over and over again. So I do think it's fair to, you know, move on. And I mean, of course, what in my opinion means nothing, but just like you know it's a choice either way but uh yeah unless you can sort of you know replicate it or you're trying to make up for something i mean you know there's so many dynamics at play you know you saw what michaela Schifrin had to go through which you know like the best skier of all time you know for whatever we would want to try and associate with had a very rough go at it and mm-hmm. so it's all just somewhat, there's a lot of factors at play. And uh, to do that is, uh, is it both fair and unfair at the same time when it's something that isn't every year and you got to yeah. play at it for yeah. so long. I, I, like, I like what you said, Joe, about the, uh, the, the speed skater, because I've thought of that too. Like these people, like it's, it takes such a different level of athlete in person to be able to commit yourself at that level continuously after having success too like it's one thing if you've mm-hmm. been if you felt like you've come up short and you know maybe things didn't go your way that's the thing that's tricky about bobsled is like you could physically be the best you'll ever be but if, if the if the race doesn't go your way it's it's not going to happen but to put that effort in a day in and day out for years you know is and obviously that's something you guys aren't um are unfamiliar with like Dave, you know, with your running, like you, yeah. you've got to put that work in, like, you're not going to go try to run across Canada after, um, you know, not completely 
preparing for it. And it's, mm -hmm. I don't think you'd want to do, it's not like, you know, when you do do that this next time, you're not going to go, oh, well, I'll probably do it again, but I'm just going to like, you know, I'll kind of train for it because you, you've got expectations that if you're going to do something, you're going to do it the best way you can. And mm -hmm. I just don't know if I can commit to, I don't know if I want to commit to that right now. You know, it's, um, it's yeah. interesting. It's an interesting feeling and I'm glad I'm feeling it rather than going, mm -hmm. I came in fourth place. Can I live with this? And then I yeah. think I'd be having a much different conversation internally about um, where I'm at in sport. But like, yeah. I talked to Dave about this too, that I want to, I want to focus on more things that I find challenging. Like I've always, I've always really struggled running growing up because I've just had this little voice in my head that wins a lot of the time that says, you know, you're done or, you know, that's enough. And in the last few years, the way I trained, changed my training to be doing more of that running, that stuff that I really don't like being in a place that I'm uncomfortable. I want to be more uncomfortable because I got, I got, uh, I got good at sprinting and I got good at lifting weights and that never really made me uncomfortable. Whereas I want to, I want to challenge myself in a, in a different way. Now, my wife's amazing for that too. Like she's a mountain runner and, uh, and just has this drive that I really respect. And, um, I, I respect that so much out of runners because you guys, like the thing about running is, is you can stop at any moment and you don't. And that's, <laughs> that's amazing. That's amazing to me. Like that's, um, that's a kind of meant like, uh, mental achievement that I, I hope to um, experience something like that someday. Yeah. I and mean, then Cam, I think that there's a lot of mutual respect that goes back and forth. I mean, after hearing the story, and I know, I know your story, but I think that, you know, I now we know your story even more now and it's, it's, it's phenomenal, your strength and, uh, and your perseverance over the last many, many, many years. And I think that we're, we're taking more from, from you than you are from us. I'm sure. Uh, maybe we all, <laughs> maybe we, maybe we could all learn a lot more from your wife as well too. But, you know, you know we Definitely. typically always, you know, end the, this conversation. We always end our podcast with asking, you know, the Chasing Tomorrow uh, question, you know, what's, what's next for you? And I think that you've already answered that, Cam. And maybe we can go into that a little bit more about, you know, really, you know, it seems like you understand where growth exists and and you lean heavily towards that and you have done that and this is exactly why you're an olympic bronze medalist um and 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 you're still continually moving in that way i'm super happy cam because i i hear when i talk to you about you know your successes in the last little bit i i know with sports psychologists and people that understand that dopamine response is that you know typically you win an olympic medal and then the next day is the worst day of your life you know, because you're like, oh, my goodness, will I ever get to that point again? This is exactly the reason why no one should do crystal meth, right? It's because <laughs> there is an incredible feeling. There's an incredible feeling. And then the next, that, that teeter-totter, the gremlins jump on the other side and the next day is the worst day of your life. But it seems like, Cam, you're taking a really good, balanced, healthy approach to all of this where you're like, you know what? I don't know just yet. I'm going to pause that. I'm going to put it aside you know, I really might miss jumping into a bathtub with three other giant men and mm -hmm. going screaming down a track, or I might not. But either way, yep. either way, it sounds, Cam, um, it sounds to me like, you know, in Cam Stone's life, in your adventure, wherever this is headed, it sounds like you might just even be started. What's what's next for you, Cam? It's a great question. Um I've definitely got some avenues I want to explore 
and I want to, I want to apply myself um, in whatever I do next in the same way that I was able to for bobsled. And I feel like that's something I wasn't able to do when I was in school. Um, it's something that I was prepared to do when I was working, um, but didn't end up doing that. And I want to, whatever I do do next is I want to approach it that same kind of mentality that I want to be the best I can be at it. And there's a few options for sure. Um, I'm going to take a little time here and explore them and just try, try to, uh, to dedicate myself in the same way that I was able to for, for these last few years. But it's an interesting feeling. Like I, um, I definitely just feel at peace with how, how my career has gone. And I don't know. Winning a bronze medal in men's bobsleigh, like it feel if I won a gold, I don't think it would feel any better. Like it's just mm-hmm. to to be in that kind of um, to to win a medal in that field is uh, is such an accomplishment for for Canada and our nation. Um, that that's that in itself is a we we joke and call this rose gold, not bronze. So uh, it's it's an amazing feeling. So I'm not sure. I've got a few things. Uh, lined up um predominantly i've got some stuff in alaska i want to do with my wife so um i'm I'm looking forward to to doing those things i wasn't able to do um in the last couple years and and, uh i'm just you know i'm gonna approach the next step of my life with uh with an open open heart and open mind and and see where it takes me because that's i mean that's ultimately how i got into bobsled i was um i was at a crossroads with uh, the bank i was working with and some things happened with uh with a recruiter not showing up to meet me. And I went, well, I'm just going to try bobsled and see how that goes. And then, uh, I mean, I was definitely, I, I came out to Calgary ready to continue to work at the bank. I'd, I'd got all my transfer stuff ready. So like, well, at least if I don't get on the bobsled team, I've got a job out here. And, uh, fortunately I haven't had to have a real job since then, but, um, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Well, Kim, amazing. Great. Oh, so fun to talk to you. Congratulations on this awesome accomplishment. And thank you, Joe. Sort of the, the sentiment, you know, almost makes me feel satisfied too, because it, <laughs> it's, it's just great to hear the appreciation for what one does and not always have to be unsatisfied, you know. Uh, and sometimes as athletes, we, we run that sort of course of always being dissatisfied. So mm-hmm. amen mm-hmm. to that attitude. It'll serve you and lots of people around you well, because uh, the journey is bigger and broader and you have a lot of life to live. And we'd love to stay friends and see what happens next. And absolutely, uh, we absolutely will. Sure. Well, congrats again. And thanks for being on with us. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Joe. I really appreciate it, guys. Talk to now I got to go hit the tar- got to go hit the pavement get my uh, get my 1.5k in today. All right. Sounds great. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Thanks fellas. Perfect. Yeah. Thanks a lot Cam. Well, that was fun, Dave. I mean, it's so cool to talk to an Olympic athlete and even more cool to one who just won a bronze medal at the Olympics. I mean, I just loved hearing his stories. It was really interesting to be able to dig into the details of how bobsledding works. I mean, I didn't really know a lot about it. Um, And Cam is just a great guy. I mean, imagine having him on your team. Uh, I would actually have a lot of fun just hanging out with him and chatting. And I guess maybe you'll have some time that the Olympics are over. Um, Okay, well, well, there you have it. Uh, Yet another amazing episode brought to you by our sponsor, Performance Tea. Check out their new endurance electrolyte blend, lemonade and iced tea flavor. It's just delicious. You can find them on www.performancetea.com. Use the discount code CHASING20 to get 20% off your purchase. And we always appreciate it if you give us a review on Apple Podcasts. 
or Spotify. That'd be awesome. And as always, a thanks to you, our listeners, for coming with us on this journey and chasing tomorrow with us. Thanks.